Welcome to Exploring Possibilities. This is a show where we interview a variety of holistic professionals, lightworkers, and practitioners who are really making a bigger difference in the world. I'm your host, Cheryl Sitz, and it was my intention in creating this show to be able to introduce you to the amazing people that I'm meeting on my own journey. I want you to hear their stories because their stories are an awful lot like our stories, and together we can explore the vast realm of holistic healing and learn how we can co-create holistic sustainability. We need it for ourselves. We need it for our planet. There's a lot of possibilities out there, and we don't often hear about them. This way we can learn and grow together, and I don't want you to hesitate to reach out and connect with anybody you hear who might resonate with you. Special thanks to Mario Rosales of Tech Life Balance for his work in producing and publishing these podcasts and on our Journey of Possibilities website. He's really using technology to make a bigger difference and help us build a community. So thank you, Mario. I appreciate it. Be sure and subscribe to these podcasts by searching for Exploring Possibilities and then subscribing on iTunes, where you can also rate us and help us get more listeners and attract more people into this path. Or if you have an Android platform, be sure and download the Stitcher app and you can subscribe there and you'll never miss an episode. Would you like to be a sponsor of Exploring Possibilities? Your message could be attached to this podcast and heard everywhere it's downloaded and played or played in the car, played at work. You could be all over the place. Just think about the possibilities. Today on Exploring Possibilities, I have with me a coach, teacher, speaker, writer. She's a creative, intuitive healer who is really focusing on helping people who would like to come off of or reduce their use of psychiatric drugs so that she can help you transform and become your whole self. And I'm very intrigued. Welcome, Haya Grossberg. Thank you so much for having me, Cheryl. Thank you for being here. I want to give your website real quick. I failed to mention that. It's resistingpsychiatry.com. You know, Haya, I'm all about trying to minimize our use of pharmaceuticals wherever possible, and you're doing it in a very cutting edge area when it comes to mental health and wellness. So I'm so interested to speak with you today. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and what got you so passionate about this subject? Yeah, thank you, Cheryl. That's a great question because that's really the fundamental element, I think, of why most of us do whatever it is that we're doing (laughs) to help others. Um, So my story is that when I was going through a sort of spiritual emergence when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I was diagnosed with a mental illness and I was put on about seven different psychiatric drugs, which made me really sick. I was bedridden for a year or two when I was on them. And I was told that that I had a mental illness and that I would have it for the rest of my life and that I would need to take these drugs for the rest of my life. But I happened to be lucky and I met some some activists and other people who had had a similar experience who were like a shining light for me. And I ended up luckily having enough support to come off of them slowly and gradually and, and to develop other things in my life that helped me to transform and catalyze my spiritual and creative emergence in a way that I didn't have to call it a mental illness. And I was able to actually find the meaning and the purpose in the experiences that I'd had. So, so since then, I've really had a strong motivation to be a light for other people, because I know that those people that were a light for me really saved my life. I'm so glad to know that you're out there doing this work, because 
I've noticed that it seems like we're medicating more and more people. We're diagnosing more and more people. Everybody's got, quote unquote, something wrong with them that they need to be on pills, especially when it comes to mental health, everything from ADD and ADHD, bipolar, of course, then you go into schizophrenia. And there's just so many labels and so many things. And it really makes me nervous how much we're doping up, especially our children. And you were a child, right? Exactly. That's what I'm most concerned about, too, because children really have no choice and they're they're being given these dangerous drugs at a very young age. And it's it's scary. It's really sad. And I mean, it's sad for the very young children. It's very sad. And it's also sad for transitional age youth, which I feel most passionate about working with is people in their late teens, early 20s, who are starting to have these emergent experiences where they're having their spirituality is opening up, their creativity is opening up, they're developing their independence. And that's an age where a lot of us start to feel like we're going quote unquote crazy because suddenly suddenly we have all these options and we're not living with our parents anymore and we're growing up and becoming adults. And I really honestly know very few people that don't have some sort of a meltdown at that age. So I think it's concerning to me as well that that so many people are being given drugs rather than a sense of questioning, inquiry, what's going on here, what's trying to emerge in this experience that's being called, you know, ADD or bipolar or schizophrenia or psychosis, etc. Yeah, I agree. You know, there's so many directions I want to go with this interview. So I'm trying to get my own thoughts and questions in order here. So I don't bombard you. <laughs> I, know. I, I have it's a such com- a complex topic. It in is. some ways, I feel like it is the essential topic that humanity is facing right now, because so many people are being drugged. And then I asked the question of like, what is it that's trying to emerge from humanity? You know, when when so many people are having these experiences that are being called crazy or being called a mental illness, if so many of us are having these experiences, what are they telling us for the, for the evolution of our shared humanity? Well, I want to ask you something that I've heard that is one theory, at least, about this, because I've gone through my own spiritual awakening, and most of our listeners are in some stage of a spiritual awakening, as well as is most of the planet, whether they're aware of it or not. But anyway, I have heard it described that many of these labeled mental illnesses are actually our innate gifts of of everything from empathy to telepathy to whatever being fully dialed up and and accessible and it's happening in our youth and because we don't know what it is and we're not really telling them the right thing that it's their spiritual gifts awakening instead we're putting them on medication to try and stop it because there's something wrong with it. Do you agree with that version of it? Or how do you describe what's happening? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is a very common version of the story. Very many people have that story where they're having a spiritual awakening of some kind or something is awakening within them. I mean, sometimes I think of it as if something within somebody is so divergent from the norm that they get labeled with a mental illness, that divergence from the norm is their gift for the world because for all of us, our divergence from the norm is our gift for the world. Everything about you that makes you unique and different from the quote unquote average Joe who doesn't actually exist um, (laughs) is what makes you, you and what makes you have something to offer. So yeah, a lot of times people who are very sensitive and as you said, empathic or telepathic or have these intuitive gifts in our culture tend to get labeled mentally ill because those gifts don't have 
a lot of value and space in our culture yet. It's starting to shift, you know, in certain certain parts of our culture are starting to recognize these gifts and how important they are and how valuable they are. But when they're not recognized, a lot of times people go into, you know, either a shell where they shut down or just feel completely overwhelmed by the world. And the world we're living in right now is pretty overwhelming for somebody who's very sensitive and intuitive because all these negative things that we all know are going on, somebody who's very sensitive and intuitive, they don't just know they're going on in their mind. They feel it in their whole being all the time or a lot of the time. So it can be extremely overwhelming. Um, So yeah, I think it's it's definitely a spiritual emergence that's happening for a lot of people. And um, yeah, so definitely I, I agree with what you said. Well, and I've heard, is it schizophrenia, I think, that described that basically all of their senses are off the charts. And so it's too much information coming in, uh, you know, through their eyes, through their ears, through the, through all of their senses, and they just can't handle it. And that was an interesting description to me, too, because that's not what I've grown up hearing in mainstream society here in the United States. I'm curious... So then when people come to you and they want to get off their meds or they want to greatly reduce their meds, aren't there times that that might be dangerous for them or or if whatever they're going through somehow makes them dangerous to others because they haven't learned how to channel it yet? Yeah, this is a very, very good and common question. I think that there are a lot of issues surrounding that. One of them is that a lot of people know very, very little about how to come off psychiatric drugs where people are put on them, you know, in a, in a second and people get put on them not only by psychiatrists, but by nurse practitioners, by family care doctors, you know, regular doctors are putting people on these drugs all the time. So just like they're putting people on, you know, medications for allergies or asthma or anything else. So a lot of people don't realize that these are very, these drugs are very hard to come off of and they have a lot of withdrawal effects, most of them. So they definitely need to be tapered very slowly in most cases. Um, And of course, each individual is different. And it depends in a lot of cases how long somebody's been on the drug, um, how healthy they are, how old they are, what other health issues they might have, how many of the drugs they're on. So it's very complicated because more and more what I'm seeing is people getting put on like three, four, five different drugs. Sometimes three of them are for the same diagnosis, which is called polypharmacy. And it's it's really a poor practice. It's not helpful. It, it causes people a lot of problems getting off because the more drugs people are on, the harder it is to withdraw because you have all these different side effects and withdrawal effects all combined together, which just makes things so difficult. And that was also a situation that I had because I was on seven of them. So withdrawing was very difficult. So when I work with people, I really meet everyone where they're at. And sometimes people aren't ready to withdraw. Sometimes people need to get other things in their life into place first. And it's it's hard. You know, I'm not going to glorify this picture for anybody because it's a very hard process for many people. Um, you know, having more resources helps and and having more social supports, having more supports for the health of the body makes a huge difference. But really, it's like, that's why what I'm most passionate about is trying to find some way to not get people necessarily on these drugs so quickly to begin with, because once people are on them for a while, it's such a difficult process to get off for many people. But then, you know, you have other people that somehow manage to get off them pretty easily, So it's different for everyone. Um, I don't want to discourage anyone, but I do know that most people I know that have come off and gone through this long and arduous process feel so grateful and so free once they've 
once they've broken free and it, it takes a long time and it's hard. And then a lot of people also have continued health problems afterwards because the drugs are very, um, they're very potent and powerful and they do a lot of things to the brain that even doctors don't understand. So I guess my main caution is for people to be careful, be more careful before taking them and see what your, what your options are. Thinking about the body as a whole and not just as a whole body, but as a whole body in a whole society. So everything that we're, we're experiencing as individuals is connected with everything around us. But again, for withdrawal, having a supportive group of people around you makes a huge difference too, because when people have friends and family who are scared and don't want them to come off, that makes it a lot harder. Of course, there are cases, yes, where people are violent. And it's it's so complicated because psychiatric drugs and withdrawal symptoms also have, have um, a history of causing violence. So I'm not sure if people have noticed, but since kids started getting put on all these psychiatric drugs, we've had all these school shootings and that never happened before. So it's been shown that all the kids who've done these school shootings have been on or withdrawing from psychiatric drugs. So it's just... It's complicated because I think the media portrays the idea that psychiatric drugs prevent violence, but it's not the reality when we actually look at the evidence and what's actually happening. It's just that the media is so bought out by the pharmaceutical industry that a lot of times the stories that the general public gets fed are stories that make people scared so that they will take psychiatric drugs because that will benefit the pharmaceutical company's you know, profit margin, basically. I'm so glad that you're being a voice for all of this. You're sharing things that I hadn't heard and wasn't aware of. And so I have to assume that others are going to benefit from hearing this as well. You know, my experience, I, I volunteered for a while at a nearby boys and girls home where at-risk youth that were, that got in trouble or were abandoned or whatever, they could go and live at this home. It's a, it's a wonderful facility. But I was amazed at the amount of medication that all of those kids were on. And really just in doing tutoring and getting involved with youth, just I don't think people are aware of how much medication our youth are on now. But I would say that half the youth seem to be on something. And that's just the ones that are on prescription medications, not even talking about the ones that go out and find their own form of medication, or play with their friends drugs or whatever. We have a serious drug problem. And it's not the street drugs anymore. It's the pharmaceutical drugs. So I'm glad that you're doing this work. And I guess one of the ways that we can help is to reach the parents that may have children that they've been advised by doctors to put on medication. And because the doctor said it, they believe that they're doing the right thing for their children. They want to help their children. What would you say to these parents that are listening? Yeah, that's it's such a complicated issue. And there's there's so many different factors involved because sometimes parents can get extra money if their kids are diagnosed as disabled. Um, you know, and being a parent in our current culture is so hard. Parents, I see that parents have so little support a, a lot of times, especially if it's single parents or, you know, parents who are in poverty or a whole host of different things can put a ton of stress on parents. And our current society, at least in America, doesn't have the kind of social support in most places to really support parents and teachers to create an environment that's trauma-informed, that helps children work things through rather than having to subdue them with medications and drugs. So I think um, what I just want for parents is for them to have so much more support and so many more resources, because a lot of things kids are experiencing are due to trauma, they're due to malnutrition, or just having a school environment that's very institutional and doesn't give kids the kind of... um, 
play opportunities and real learning opportunities that they need, or even just teaching kids basic skills on how to relate with one another. I was thinking, I was just thinking about how somebody pointed out that in all of our years of school, we basically learn almost nothing about how to relate with one another, which is one of the most important things in life. But school doesn't really teach us it besides just saying, you know, like, just little cliches, like share with your friends or, you know, don't fight or something like that. But there's, there's very little actual um, conflict resolution skills that are taught in school or helping people through things. So what I would love to see is for school systems to really delve into these issues and be trauma-informed. You know, there's there's a new movement coming up towards schools in America being trauma-informed because most kids are traumatized at home. You know, a lot of families have abuse. A lot of families are so stressed out and have had so much trauma themselves that this is getting passed down to the kids at a very young age and kids are obviously reflecting the pain that they're experiencing from this. So for parents, I just, it's not even so much what I would say to them as what I want for them is to have more options and to have better resources. I like that you said that because that brings the responsibility way out beyond the parents. That puts exactly. it in the community where it belongs. We It does take a village to raise a child. And I think all of us, whether we are raising children now, have raised them in the past, or don't have kids at all, we have a responsibility to the community to make sure that the kids that are coming up now have a good chance in this world and are given a decent world and every advantage to make it a better place than we are now. So I think it's important that instead of maybe medicating them all, we start putting together the resources. It's funny that you mentioned communication. That's been my, a a big interest and passion for me. And I grew up, you know, I wasn't diagnosed as having anything wrong or put on any kinds of medication. I grew up in what would from the outside look like an average American family. We didn't have a clue how to communicate and resolve conflict either. And I've had to go and learn all of that. I don't understand why we don't teach our kids that in school. It's an interesting point that you make. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Even people that don't have a huge amount of trauma in their family like yourself still don't learn basic communication skills. And then when you think about all the levels of trauma and like the the adverse childhood experience studies that have these you know types of trauma and some kids have like all you know a whole long list of them like having parents who are on drugs parents who are incarcerated you know losing a parent at an at an early age being abused there're just so many so many different forms of trauma that are affecting so many children and even and then yeah even the kids who are coming from pre, like families that don't have a lot of trauma still don't learn basic communication skills in a lot of cases. So, or just the ability to resolve conflict in a safe way, or yeah, just like learning how to deal with very intense and overwhelming emotions and experiences without being violent. Well, I'm Um, not sure who's going to teach the kids considering how many parents are divorcing because we don't resolve conflict well. We don't know how to resolve our differences. It's really more of an almost nationwide epidemic than it is just a problem for our youth. And I hope that we're starting to attend to that and learn some new skills. I would like to redirect it just a little bit in the conversation now. I want to ask you for the listeners who maybe have been on medication for a while. I don't know. Um, they they were diagnosed a while back and they've taken it and they would love to get off the medication, but they don't know how. And they hear all this holistic stuff and they're looking for solutions. What do you tell your adults that find you that really want to break away from this cycle? It's a good question. There are a few elements that I think are key. And some of them we've already touched on, like nutrition is very important. Taking care of the body and the health is very important. 
um, having a community of people to support you is so important. And I know that in a lot of places, people have a hard time finding support, but so that's, that's an issue. And, um, there are a few little pockets in the country and there are, there are getting to be more and more, but there are some pockets of, of places where there is support for people who want to come off psychiatric drugs. Um, and what I mean by support is primarily peer support from people who've done it themselves. But there's also, there are also a growing number of naturopaths and even psychiatrists and medical doctors who are learning a bit more about the process of withdrawal. There still is a very small number. So peer support and getting the support of a holistic healthcare practitioner is are both very helpful for most people. The other um, the other thing that I think is really important is for people to be able to somehow at some point go back into what it was that was going on that caused them to have the suffering that ended up getting them labeled with a mental illness and to be able to remake their meaning out of that and retell their story and find what was their creative impulse and what was it that got interrupted. Because for most people, I think of the diagnostic process as an interruption of the natural process that somebody's going through. And if that process is interrupted and diagnosed as a mental illness, then a lot of times people identify with the mental illness for a long time. So I think in people who strongly identify with that illness, it's um, a big part of the process is to find what's underneath that, what was the creative um, drive that wanted to come out. And a lot of times it's really scary because these are like the fundamental um, parts of ourselves that are scared to be seen, that are scared to, to put themselves forth into the world. Like, for example, I'm a writer. And a lot of times when I write things, I'm terrified to share them. I have a blog and you know, some of the most potent and important things that I write, I like literally have like physical symptoms of fear when I'm sharing them and when I'm sharing them with the world. So I think in a lot of cases, the journey, you know, undiagnosing oneself and taking a journey that isn't about labeling oneself within with a mental illness, but rather taking the courageous path is not always easy. It can be scary. It can be lonely. It can feel overwhelming. And it's also extremely rewarding. So I guess what what I'm really getting at is that there's a, there has to be a sense of full-on commitment to the spiritual and creative path. It has to be 100%. And I, I, <laughs> I know how scary that is. I'm saying this as somebody who is scared a lot of the time myself of that. But it has to be 100% because that's really what our life paths are, are asking of us. So if we're going to live the life of but I guess I'm hearing the word spiritual warrior or something of that nature, um, we are kind of always up against an oppressive culture. So it's not going to always be easy. But I think that having a community, oh, what I was going to say again about having a community is if somebody doesn't have one in their local area, there are, there is a lot of online community around this topic. So there are a lot of Facebook groups, there are some listservs, there are a lot of blogs and websites. So there is a lot of opportunity for people to connect. And now, you know, we have this chance where people can connect online, they can connect on video chat. I've, I've known a lot of people in the psychiatric survivor community, which is what we call ourselves, people who've survived um, having our lives diagnosed, is a lot of these people have connected first online, but then they've met in person and become actual friends, or they've talked on the phone or talked on video chat. So 
there is the opportunity that we have now for to connect with people all around the world who've gone through something similar and hopefully find the kind of support that's just right for each individual, the kinds of friendships that can be truly supportive. So, for example, if you're going through withdrawal from a specific drug, you can you can find somebody online who just who just went through the withdrawal from that drug who can give you some ideas, give you some tips or tell you what they went through. You can also find people who are also going through that withdrawal. And um, I highly recommend the Facebook groups because that's where I see people reaching out and finding some connection. And then there are also a lot of blogs. But if you look on my website and blog, you can find um, one of my blogs has a list of all these Facebook groups. And I have another resource page, which lists a lot of blogs. So there is a lot on the internet to find. And then for people who don't necessarily love connecting on the internet, you can then bring those relationships off the internet and actually connect with people in, you know, real time and space and so forth. So isn't it great how the world's getting smaller all the time that way? I, you know, people can say what they want to about the internet. And I, I agree. Many people spend a lot more time on it than is probably healthy, but in a balanced capacity to be able to have the world as your community via the internet, especially when you're going through trauma, it's ha- it's helped me. I know when I lost my mother, it was a great resource for me to be able to use these tools to connect with people when I couldn't otherwise at, at weird hours or whatever. So I think it's yeah, great, these communities. Definitely. Weird hours is a really good point because for some people going through psychiatric drug withdrawal, there's a lot of insomnia that can come with that and difficulty sleeping in the middle of the night and having, you know, intense anxiety or panic in the middle of the night. And then if you have a friend who lives on the other side of the world who you met online, you can have somebody to talk to at that moment, you know, which is, which I know for me was really helpful actually, because I had a friend in Hawaii when I was living on the East coast and I was able to connect with him when I was up in the middle of the night. That's awesome. I hadn't even thought about that. I'm glad you brought that up. Something else that you said I wanted to go back and mention because I hadn't really ever had it framed for me that way. It never occurred to me that a child can be going along in life and there can be a trauma in their life that causes them to act out. I had one in mine and I acted out. I wasn't diagnosed because that wasn't the craze at that time. So it was handled in another also dysfunctional way, but I wasn't (laughs) diagnosed and medicated. It never occurred to me that that's what's happening to these kids that are going through these traumas and that if what had happened to me had happened now, I would probably be diagnosed and medicated. So I love how you said their life was diagnosed for them and you've got to go back to the trauma and uncover that. Do you see a lot of that in your practice? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much for everyone because, yeah, so there's the spiritual emergence element, but there's also the trauma element and the creativity element. And the three, I think of those three things as like a triangle, like a sacred triangle. There's the creativity, the spiritual emergence and the trauma. And a lot of times, you know, we can just focus on one of those things, but the trauma is always a really big piece for, for almost everyone. Almost, I'd say pretty much everyone has experienced some kind of trauma and even the mental health system itself is very traumatic for people. So like the, the kind of experience that in a different type of culture or with different resources might be supported and uplifted and even celebrated is actually being oppressed, which is traumatic. But but besides the, the trauma from the mental health system, there's also so much other trauma. Even from I, the again, drugs. Basically, since we don't have such great methods of recovering from trauma or processing trauma, a lot of it gets stuck in people and then comes out as these antisocial behaviors or just extreme suffering, really. 
Yeah. And, and the drugs cause so many side effects too, that aren't good for your health. So it's just, it's, it seems like once you're on that road, it's easy to get even more lost on that road before you can find your way out of it. Yeah. It's sad because, because it kind of puts a stop. It halts the trauma recovery process because it adds, you know, it does weird things to the brain and the body. And then, I mean, I know for me, like when I first was being put on neuroleptics, which are called antipsychotics, like the one that I was put on was Risperdal. I could feel that I couldn't have my emotional tra- um, trauma recovery process when I was on it because it was subduing my emotions and it was doing weird things to my mind and making me eat constantly. And it was like I was trying to process some intense emotions, but it wasn't letting me. It was like, you know, making me feel kind of bland and unemotional and quote unquote stable. But I think whenever we try to stabilize somebody with a drug, there's always going to be a backlash later on because what we're really doing is repressing the emotions. And, you know, there are some cases maybe when somebody's having an emergency of some sort where it can be, you know, there there is a time for crisis aversion, but not for, you know, I, I don't think that it's usually helpful to do it on a daily basis such that the entire process of um, emotional uh, processing gets eclipsed and basically shut down. So when you're doing work with these clients to reduce their use or eliminate their use of these drugs, you said um, that it's basically that they come to you. So you don't go out and say, hey, everybody needs to do this. It's the people that are ready coming to you. But then is there a certain group that you're having the best success with or or is just anybody kind of a candidate, no matter what their diagnosis? Or how would I know if I'm a good client to work with you and try to do this? Great question. And thank you for asking that. I most love to work with young women, um, like transitional age in their late teens or 20s, primarily because this group I do find the most success with. I do find that the younger people are, the easier it is to go through this process. And that's not to say that I don't think it's extremely important for everyone to have support in this. It's just that I feel most drawn to young women. So I feel um, really like enlivened by helping young women who who don't want to take psychiatric drugs and haven't been on them for that long to come off. And I think partly why I feel most drawn to that group is because that's the age that I was when this all happened to me. I was 21 approximately, you know, when give or take a few years because it started a few years before that and took a few years after that for me to recover yeah, I think in some way, because I had it at that age, I think that that's an age of, of like I said in the beginning, a spiritual emergence, a creative emergence that is really potent. Um, but but I hope that there are people to support people of all ages, because just, you know, I guess I just want to say that just because I feel most drawn to working with young women, there's just so much need amongst all demographics for support. So it's hard, you know, it's hard for me to, um, to, to have to choose because of course I want to help everyone. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, young women are the ones that I have the most success with. So how long, I know everybody's different and unique. Is there any kind of an average of how long it's going to take them to try and change the process if they haven't been taking the drugs for that? Because I'm imagining that you're doing a multi-layered system with them, right? Where it's not just overcoming the addictions that may exist with the medications, but then finding holistic alternatives for them and a support network for them and, and whatever else they've got going on, right? Yeah, yeah, it's just it's so individual. I mean, most recently, there was a young woman that I worked with, and um, she, 
she was she hadn't been on them for for very much time but she had been getting a lot of pressure from the hospital system to go on them and basically i just i guess i don't want to get too specific for confidentiality's sake but but i think for each person it's very different because I mean, it's great when you can divert somebody from psychiatric drugs and then work with everything else in their life. And then there is everything else in their life. So there is still going to be, you know, a lot of challenge, especially, I think, for for young people, because that is such a challenging age. So I guess I feel um, I feel like there and there's also no end to the process because we're all living our lives and constantly, you know, as we get older, continuing to recover and recover from our earlier trauma and also process it and also find other, you know, other things that we're interested in life. And so I guess it's it's not even a linear process that can really be said to have a beginning and an end. But what I feel most drawn to is helping people who are trying to, you know, find an alternative to even getting into that system so much to begin with. And maybe they've been put on some drugs or maybe they've been hospitalized, but they never really believed in that system and didn't want to take part in it. But so I want to be the person who affirms that and says, yes, you are right. You don't have to do that. There are other options. You don't have to buy into that system if, if it's not what you believe in. And you can be validated for who you are and who how you want to define yourself. You know, it doesn't have to be a doctor telling you who you are and, and what you should, how you should define yourself. And, and most importantly, what you can expect for the rest of your life. Because what's sad to me is that a lot of young people are being told that this is a serious mental illness that you'll have for the rest of your life. And you have to take this drug for the rest of your life. And there's really, that's, you know, the only hope for you is maybe having like a quote unquote functional life with this medication. But I think that for young people, there's so much more than that. There's so much more hope than that. And, um, it's really cruel actually to limit somebody with that type of a diagnosis and that kind of, of a prognosis for their whole life. I agree. You know, it's funny because as we're talking about this, I'm also thinking back to, you know, 21. It's been a couple of years, but I can still remember. And it's so, <laughs> when somebody told me anything at 21 about this is going to be forever, the rebel in me kind of jumped out and went, I'll show you nothing. You're not yeah. going to tell me. So it almost might be a good thing that they go so far with that diagnosis because it may make some rebellious young people go, no, you're not going to tell me forever. I'm going to find a way out of this. And, and I right. just so commend them for their search and for their strength to do that. The other thing I was thinking about when you were talking is, so I did go into a, a time where I had some reaction to what had happened to me in my youth. I had a, a great youth in many senses, but I too had my problems. And I did go to street drugs for a while. And to me, the great irony was coming off of that addictive behavior and not having those substances to numb me out and then trying to deal with the trauma that had happened that had driven me into them in the first place. Very much like what you're describing now. And I remember thinking, this is almost brutal that I'm going to give up the, the stuff that can help me not feel the pain. And then I'm going to go dive in and feel all the pain. But you do have to feel it to heal it as long as you're on a path that's actually healing it. But I can imagine for someone that's been taking these medications, for their diagnosed illness to try and stop taking them and then go into the, the trauma that sent them into that is very difficult to not revert back, right? Yeah, it's very difficult. And I think, I think it's very difficult to live a life without addiction in our world right now because our life, because our culture runs on addiction, you know, like the nine to five, the, the coffee all day, the alcohol at night, like the whole, the sugar, like it's, it's like our whole society pretty much the mainstream runs on addiction. And 
I think to be living a life of less addiction, I mean, we all have some addiction, even if it's addiction to the internet or TV or whatever it is. I think we all have those, those things we need to do in order to check out or escape when we're feeling too overwhelmed or whatever. But so, yeah, but even to try to minimize, let's say, substance addiction or any type of addiction, any type of minimizing of addiction is going to bring up all those feelings. And it's hard, especially because we're living in a culture of addiction, because there are so few people who are taking that journey of living without addiction. So it's hard. And I think that especially for very sensitive people, but I also notice that very sensitive people also tend to be very sensitive to substances. So they get really damaged by these substances and even more so than somebody who might not be as sensitive. So yeah, it's, um, it does bring up a lot to, to attempt to live without drugs and without, with, you know, as little addiction as possible. It, it brings up so much. And I think that the only way somebody can live a life that way is with a huge amount of faith and a huge sense of purpose in life, because Without those things, I don't know what would carry somebody along, you know, because our our world is so despairing in some ways. And I definitely feel that a lot as an empath and a sensitive person. Sometimes I really feel like my faith and my spiritual path and my sense of purpose in life is truly the only thing I have or the only thing that actually keeps me alive and keeps me going um, on a day-to-day basis. I hear you. I think that's actually what we're all, but I think that's the lesson that's in all of this stuff for all of us, whether we're coming down a path of having our life diagnosed for us or whatever our path, it seems like that's the nugget that we're supposed to get is when we take away all that other stuff, what do we have to fall back on? Oh yes, our faith, our spirituality. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. And I think that that's why in a lot of 12 step programs, I'm not like for or against them or anything, but, um, But, you know, it's like the fundamental core of recovering from an addiction is the spirituality. And I know that 12-step programs have a specific type of spirituality that not everyone, it does not work for everyone. But just the fact that it is that spiritual faith that does work for some people to help them through um, an addiction. You're very intuitive. I'm enjoying very much visiting with you. Thank you for taking the time to share this. You're doing some beautiful work with people that it's so needed right now at this time. You're in the Portland, Oregon area if people want to work with you in person. Yes, I'm in the Portland, Oregon area. And I also work with people by phone, by Skype. And I do teach workshops on occasion, which will be happening in Portland. And I also sometimes teach in other places. So And online at resistingpsychiatry.com, visiting with Haya Grossberg. Haya, do you have anything else that you'd like to share with us as a closing thought before we wrap up today? First, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been really lovely chatting with you. And I, I appreciate your questions and your ideas a lot. And it's it's you're a great um, host because I feel like very open and able to share a lot with you. I thank think you. that what I a final thought I would like to leave with people is really to trust yourself and to to work on finding that inner wisdom and that connection with yourself and the ability to find your own answers within as much as you can. Because I think that 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 sense of faith in oneself is really the key to liberation from the oppressive elements of the psychiatric system. Lovely. Thank you so much. That's perfect. I think that's really the key to freedom for all of us from whatever is holding us Exactly. Back. Exactly. Thank you so much, Haya. It's been a pleasure to visit with you today. Thank you so much, Cheryl. 
Do you have a moving story about your own journey and natural healing path you'd like to share? Drop us a note, info at journeyofpossibilities.com. Until next time, this is Cheryl Sitz reminding you to use your passions and make a bigger difference. Let's co-create holistic sustainability for ourselves and for our planet. Namaste. Namaste.